0: Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. In Contravention of All That's Sacred, we have a supernumerary three guests in three segments today. Sean Jacobs will tell us what motivated South Africa to bring its case against Israel to the World Court, Eric Blank will talk about how changes in our physical layout make it harder to organize unions, and Hassan Al-Tayab will offer some observations drawn from a recent visit to Israel-Palestine. Before that, an update. A couple of weeks ago in this show, Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Institute said that there were no current estimates of the number of Americans subject to electronic monitoring, ankle bracelets, by the criminal justice or immigration systems. The last reliable count, 125,000, was by Pew in 2015. But now there's some news. The Vera Institute of Justice is just out with a fresh estimate. Around half a million in 2022, roughly a third criminal and two-thirds immigration, a four-fold increase in seven years. Add that half million to the two million behind bars, and you've got quite the carceral state. What led South Africa to filing charges of genocide against Israel in the International Court of Justice, a.k.a. the World Court? And since we're on the topic of South Africa, why did the African National Congress kick out Jacob Zuma, the president of the country from 2009 to 2018, who was driven from office over corruption charges before completing his second term? Zuma eventually did some time for refusing to cooperate with a judicial inquiry into those charges. A pariah now in his former party, Zuma founded his own, and the ANC isn't very happy about it. To explore all this, we're joined by Sean Jacobs. Sean, who grew up in South Africa, is an associate professor of international affairs at the New School of Manhattan and publisher of the webzine Africa is a Country. Sean Jacobs so sean what was it within south african politics and culture that uh led
1: uh, the country to bring the case against israel to the world court so firstly i'll deal with the cynics the cynics would say that the anc is on the ropes it uh faces a tough election fight and it has very little to offer its voters you know apart from the fact that it was at the lead of the forces that, that defeated legal apartheid so palestine became this kind of you know galvanizing force so kind of for the collective will of south africans um, south africans could identify israeli apartheid you know up front because it reminded them particularly black south africans the majority reminded you of apartheid or even worse and so the argument was for an ANC that's very weak that's divided that has many internal problems and also not just not just from if you want the, the white minority which often doubles as kind of what in South Africa are known as liberals, but is essentially right-wing in the way that they they, they seem to mirror uh, Republican talk points in American Republican politics. Um, but also from like a new generation of like young leftists, from Pan-Africanists, you, if you remember Fees Must Fall, if you remember uh, Roads Must Fall, or from all this plethora of like smaller political parties that are, that are contest going to contest the elections. But I think all of that most of that, that argument misses the point, because the truth is South Africa, and I think this, this is where I think the motivation come from, has a very long history with Palestinians. Um, during the struggle, like particularly starting in the 1970s, when, when essentially sort of the, the idea of Israel as is this kind of plucky, upstart third world country changed, right, because of the, it became very clear to people of what Israel was doing to the Palestinians. And very more explicitly, the ANC became very close to the PLO. At the same time, the Israeli government, and if you want, Israeli ruling elite, became very close to apartheid, like weapons trading, nuclear weapons, weapons technology, diplomatic cover at the UN, just all kinds of exchanges between these two, if you want, like rogue regimes. So as the ANC and the majority majority of South Africans were identifying with Palestinians, the Israeli government and the white South African government became closer. And I was telling somebody the other day, I remember very very vividly growing up in the 1980s and seeing, you know, the keffiyeh, the scarves, uh, seeing the flags at ANC rallies. Well, not ANC explicitly, but those forces that were like aligned to the ANC, like the UDF, the Mass Democratic Movement, or COSATU. So like you saw those same kind of imagery at present at the at the rallies of the ANC. Mandela himself when he came when when South Africa had its first democratic elections and he became the president he made it very explicit I think in a speech in 1996 that the f- freedom of Palestinians and I'm paraphrasing um, is tied up with the freedoms of, of South Africans and then when he visited Palestine later near the end of his presidency he spoke you know movingly about the connection to to Palestinians now it is true it is true that South Africa, in the period since mandela left office so tabo Mbeki who mostly kind of looked towards the african continent and jacob zuma for whom politics became much more domestic more internal stopped caring as much about the palestinian question and also south africa while it was very clear about its relationship to palestinians it did also develop formal relationships with israel it has an embassy there. It trades with Israel. I think it is Israel's largest trading partner in the sub-Saharan continent. So there was this kind of double, I don't want to call it double consciousness, that whereas the majority of South Africans clearly sided with Palestinians, it was the case that the South African government, perhaps geopolitics, realpolitik, was dealing with Israel. And so given the events then subsequently of, of October 7th, and then Israel's uh, vengeful attacks against Palestinians in Gaza. I think two things then kicked into gear. One is South Africa has one of the best organized sections of BDS. They definitely have the ear of the government. So the, the foreign minister Naledi Pandor and others within the state are very very receptive to some of the things that BDS um, says and wants to do. And secondly, also South Africa has a very like vocal protest movement around Palestine you know visibly there's a there's a very large and active muslim population who were part of the working class part of the struggle and who could make those connections with Palestine even if their connection was based on religion and then i think the last part is the country has a legal tradition which i think is very unique and therefore people were like shocked to see these lawyers who turn up in the Hague It has a a legal tradition that dates back to apartheid, but particularly from, I would say, roughly the 1970s, and particularly in the 1980s, the setting up of human rights clinics that fought apartheid, and then after apartheid continue to to celebrate and welcome the new dispensation, but also to still challenge the new government. So many of the lawyers you saw, then I'll just single out two of them, for example, Adila Hasim, who was the the, the lawyer, the, the Indian lawyer who, Indian South African lawyer who like spoke very eloquently. I think she was the second, she was the first speaker after the Minister of Justice kind of introduced South Africa's presentation. She's part of a thing called um, Section 27, which is an organization based in Johannesburg that fights for the rights that people are afforded in terms of Section 27 of the South African Constitution. That's like healthcare, housing, etc. And also she was the lead counsel in a case that families of uh, psychiatric patients had brought against the government after I think something like almost 150 of their relatives had died at a government psychiatric clinic. And so they took the government to court and she led that case against the government. And then one other one, Max Duplessis, I think he was the second to last speaker, white South African, African surname. Um, he defended one of the opposition parties against the South African government when they tried to get the South African government to provide official reasons as to whether or not they were gonna arrest Putin when he would attend the meeting of the the BRICS in South Africa. So my sort of long short answer is, it's a case here of the the connections between the popular movement, uh, between the religious movements and various elements within government. And I think even more than that, which I think is the more decisive one, is South Africa has an incredible activist lawyer tradition within civil society, and in this instance, they combined with the South African government, and in a way, they brought out, from, from, from what I, my estimation, the progressive quality of the South African government. Now, what you introduced as the cynical case is not entirely untrue, right? hmm I mean, it's not. You could argue that the ANC, of course, there, there are elements within the ANC the government who government who would like for people to forget that the last, what is it now? It's going to be 30 years this year. This is the 30th anniversary of, of elections, um, for democratic South Africa. You know that things haven't gone too well. I'm of the opinion that you know I don't want to be too forgiving of the ANC government, but I think it is true. You have to be. You have to have some perspective. That yes, you've had almost 300 years of various forms of white domination, exploitation, colonial violence, apartheid violence, and then you've had like 30 years. To experiment with something else that is humane, that includes all South Africans. Now, at the same time, that's fine. And I think the ANC would probably argue that the conditions under which it had to create this new South Africa, you know, the rules of the game, it wasn't allowed to touch the economy. Uh, It had to um, come up with what's called sunset clauses right at the beginning, where it had to retain the elements of the white civil service, including those ones who probably weren't interested in, in a new South African government, all kinds of plots and counterplots. But then I would say, and here I think the critics of the government have a point. Much of that tenure of the ANC was characterized by corruption. Um, it's been characterized by non-delivery, by compromise, You know, by a failure to deal with those issues in South Africa that particularly black people care about, You know, for their lives to change for the better. So yes, there are some people who might argue... This is an attempt by the ANC to not talk about the internal domestic politics of South Africa. But I, I also think that, that I, have a, I have somewhat of a problem with that, because I think there is a problem in South Africa to be very parochial. South Africans, often um, in their criticism of the ANC government's decision, they want to interpret everything in terms of these local political um, things that are happening to them instead of, you know, understanding sort of South Africa's role within the world.
0: I'm speaking with Sean Jacobs, Associate Professor of International Affairs at the New School. We can um, give some credit to the cynics, but uh, basically this was quite a noble um, gesture, and uh, it really has uh, transformed the political environment uh, in which Israel
1: is operating in. It's been quite effective, really. No, it definitely has. If you think that, and there's there's other people who have done better research on this, Yotam Gidron, for example, is an Israeli uh, social scientist who works on on, um, Israel's relations with African countries. And if you look at, at Israel's diplomatic push, up until this point, I think it had done really well in dividing what was once a sort of solid support for the Palestinians on the African continent when it came to the UN, etc. And you may have seen this sort of demonstrated by the Ugandan representative on the court who voted like no on all the the asks of South Africa. So Israel had done really well, including in Muslim majority countries, in in kind of confusing, dividing, you know, offering them up technology. Uh, military surveillance technology, Rwanda, Uganda, parts of West Africa. Um, so Israel had done really well on that. Israel had also done really well in painting any of its opponents, anybody who criticized what it was doing against Palestinians, as anti-Semitism. And so it was leaning on countries whenever you know you had people protesting, whether they were in universities, whether on sports fields, etc. It felt like Israel had made it really difficult and frustrating for anybody who was sort of struggling with what was happening with the Palestinians. And as you said, this act to the ICJ changed a lot of that landscape. And I think it changed it in two ways for me personally. I think one, it, it showed that governments, societies could use like these instruments, these international instruments, which weren't created for them, but were created by imperialist countries. Um, right after the Second World War, they were sort of stacked against countries of the South to intervene in them. I think one is that people could use now these instruments and the ICJ because Israel happened to be a signatory to that court, South Africa could take it, take them to that court. If it's like the ICC, where there's always complaints about who they seek singling out, it would be probably much harder to pull this off. So focusing on a an instrument that you can actually use. So as somebody said the other day, using the master's tools, um, I think uh, that was the one side of it. The other thing that I think is interesting is that people have always been talking about, like, what could re- the realignment look like in the world? And so Lula coming back into power, Lula had made some noises about spearheading, like, a new political framework for the global south. Uh, but it's been very unclear. I think he does, it doesn't have the same energy as that first, much younger Lula, him, and uh, Salso Amorim. Coming out of that, you saw bricks. BRICS, it seems, wants to be everything to everybody, whether it's democracies like South Africa and Brazil, or whether it's authoritarian regimes or theocracies. They're all now in BRICS. BRICS is going to be expanded. So, what is BRICS's political agenda becomes unclear. And so, I think what South Africa did here is South Africa points towards something which is not just a kind of reinvigorated global South, but also Countries from other parts of the world that you never could have thought, hey, they could have been an ally in this or that fight. So you have like an Irish lawyer, which is from a country that had experienced colonialism at the hands of Britain, making what most people were suggesting was probably the best speech in in, in articulating the demands of Palestinians or their need. Uh, You had Bosnian, the the victims of of the genocide in in Bosnia, uh, writing a note to the court Asking that the provisional measures that they wanted when they were under attack and they didn't get, um, and they remember what the consequences that they, because of that, they're asking that that should be extended to Palestinians. Slovenia um, also supported the South Africans. I think in the next couple of days after the case, you saw Dutch companies taking uh, the Dutch uh, government to court over supplying technology to Israel. I've now heard that there are cases in the US to take on Biden by victims of uh, Palestinian victims, taking on Biden, the families of Palestinian victims. So I think what South Africa has done in a way is to invigorate a new global South plus politics. It's not clear yet what that can be. I think those for me is like something interesting, exciting.
0: Now there's a substantial Jewish community in South Africa, not enormous, but of some political
1: significance historically.
0: Do they figure in the politics relating
1: to Israel at all? It's a very small community, and I think it's also a very divided community. Overwhelmingly, my sense is that the Jewish community in South Africa, which is very conservative, and lines up with sort of Zionist political project, are pro-Israel. The chief rabbi of the South African Jewish deputies repeats all Israel's talking points. If you go on any social media, if, if you happen to watch a video from a South African newscaster, And there happens to be somebody speaking on behalf of the Jewish community. They'll generally they'll side they'll side with Israel, but I don't think that's the full story. Just now, probably the one of the most significant things that happened was there was a statement by five hundred South African Jews, uh, ranging from people who are very prominent um, to just ordinary people who signed a statement. Many very well known names calling for a ceasefire, calling for the end of violence to Palestinians. And saying that they, they want to do that because that's what what's demanded of them, um, of Jews, because there is a Jewish tradition that is not interested in, in this kind of violence. There's also been prominent Jews in South Africa who've said that most Jews have actually flourished in cosmopolitan societies and that there was that this, that this idea of creating a homeland, that that's a particular kind of political tradition. And then beyond that, as you know, there is also a very proud, although it's a marginal tradition, but very vocal tradition within the Jewish community in South Africa in which um, Jews sided with the anti-apartheid movement and with the liberation struggle, whether it was Joe Slovo, Ruth First, or Ronnie Kasrils. But having said that, it is the case that the majority of Jews um, obviously side with, side with Israel. The South African government, for example, have been criticized for allowing people to go and fight for Israel. Like South African law prohibits you from fighting for a foreign army, yet the South African government has not arrested any of those people. Um, and so it will be interesting up ahead what the South African government does about that. But uh, overall, I think the even if those people are there in South, in, in South African society, whether they are white liberals, whether they, whether they are Zionists, Jews, whether they are Christian Zionists, the point about south africa right now is they've kind of lost the argument the majority of south africans i saw today the minister of justice sorry appeared on hard talk the bbc program and he was asked about the statement of the, the chief rabbi of south africa um as to whether like that there is apparently an increase in anti-sem anti-semitism anti-semitic attacks in south africa and you know he basically i think he was shocked and so were many south africans if you look at social media many journalists Many prominent South African researchers pointed out that probably what is being now called anti-Semitism is essentially criticism of Israel. So, yeah, there is a Jewish community, very vocal. But I think even that community in itself is very divided now um, about about what's going on in Gaza.
0: OK, and now to shift. Since I have you here, um, good, uh, I just want to ask you this question. The ANC kicked out uh, Jacob Zuma, former president. Um, what's that all about? What did he do? Uh,
1: what's going on internally with the party uh, that caused him to do this? So he was, as you remember, he, when he was president, he was being tried for uncorruption charges, like lots of technical um, back and forth between him and the party. He eventually lost the president of the party and hence the presidency of the country to one of his rivals, Bruno Ramaphosa. Uh, since then, um, one of the lawyers actually in the ICJ case he led a, a case on behalf of opposition parties, particularly of Julius Malema's EFF, to have uh, uh, Zuma tried for contempt of court because of some stuff Zuma had said about the court. And so in the end, Zuma was found guilty and went to jail. Now, technically, he cannot run for president again, um, but he instead still went ahead and formed a, another political party. He called it the MK Party. And MK, the, the ab- abbreviation in South Africa, it stands from Konto Isizueh, which means like spear of the nation, the military wing of the ANC. So he took like he took the ANC's military wing's name, shortened it, and made a political party. No, that takes and, some nerves to steal that name, doesn't it? As they said today, he brought them into disrepute, so therefore they suspending him. I mean, again, I don't know the part. Obviously, the party will probably just change its name, um, and mainly it's former members of Mkontuwezizwe or other people who claim to be members of Mkontuwezizwe, but they were like maybe five years old (laughs) at the end of apartheid. In a way, Zuma's leading kind of a coalition of, you want like the deplorables, to to borrow from American language, um, of people who were in the ANC, but are mad with the ANC. And he's been mouthing, you know, all kinds of unconstitutional, uh, very backward political stances on gay rights, on the death penalty, um, which all these things, are, the rights that are protected and shining in South Africa's constitution, anybody watching South African politics closely, Zuma would probably gain a couple of seats in KwaZulu-Natal, which is the province where he's from and um, where he actually had most of his political success and actually where he was most useful to the ANC in terms of brokering deals with the Inkata Party, which used to be a proxy of the white South African government um, and ending what was like quite a violent war there. But having said that, what does it mean for the ANC he's gonna chip away I think mostly at the margins of the ANC and then Zulu traditionalists or just various other people who it doesn't make any sense but they still have nostalgia you know for Zuma's rule like corruption like you know the corruption of the state stalling any development in South Africa for a very long period while he was in power but what he's doing in a way is He actually is going to, he gives the ANC some points here. So if you want to be a cynic again, the ANC will benefit from this because the ANC will look good. You know, the ANC, which is embattled, which seemed to struggle to deal with corrupt elements, now will, right before an election, look like they dealt firmly with with Jacob Zuma. And so probably in the end, the problem in South Africa right now is the opposition parties all are chipping away at each other's support. They're fighting each other over like electoral support and they're not making a dent um, into the ANC support. So if it looked like Zuma was making that dent, if you think about sort of mainstream society, like particularly the black middle class or the average black voter, if they they have a distrust of the opposition, even though they don't like the ANC, this might be one of those things that make them think, you know what, I'm staying with the ANC. I was Sean Jacobs, Associate Professor of International Affairs at the New School
0: of Manhattan and publisher of the webzine, Africa is a Country. Sean cited Section 27 of the South African Constitution. Here's part of what it says. Everyone has the right to have access to health care services, including reproductive health care, sufficient food and water, and social security, including if they are unable to support themselves and their dependents' appropriate social assistance. Not much like our Constitution. And now a shift of focus to unions in the U.S. Eric Blank had a post on his substack, Labor Politics, on January 17th, on how sprawl, suburbanization, and the rise of the service sector have made it much harder to organize unions than when workers lived in dense cities and toiled in large factories. Eric, who's an assistant professor of labor studies at Rutgers, has a book coming out later this year from the University of California Press, We Are the Union, How Worker-to-Worker Organizing Can Transform America. Eric Blank. You open this post with an interesting quote from William Z. Foster of the Communist Party who said in 1936, meetings should be held in popular neighborhood halls where the workers' fraternal lodges meet, where the workers dance, where their weddings take place, and where they're generally accustomed to going. Now, that seems really quaint uh, almost 90 years later. We don't live like that anymore. What does
2: that do to uh, possibilities uh, for organizing unions? To me, it's just a great window into the extent to which things have changed. And and that's maybe an obvious point, but it's actually underestimated uh, amongst union organizers because we have a tendency to talk about the 1930s as the great labor breakthrough and people study it a lot and say, you know, how can we copy the methods? People are always talking about that as a reference point, but it's a real question about whether we can just copy those methods because the structure of life has changed so much, you know, working class people are much more dispersed. And essentially what that means for organizers is you need to find new mechanisms through which you would bring together workers who aren't organically linked via the neighborhood and via their workplace in these very dense, associationally rich um, environments. And so the short version is it makes organizing harder and it makes it so that even when you get one organizing win, that win is less likely to set off an organic chain reaction because you know, the metaphor I use is if you set up dominoes too far from each other, knocking one over doesn't set off a chain reaction. And that gives you a sense of it is that when workers are more spread out, it takes more work to organize large numbers of them.
0: I recall the early days when they were organizing the Taxi Workers Union in New York City. The organizers would meet the drivers in gas stations and restaurants and places that they congregated in. Is there anything comparable in other industries and
2: other places? The extent to which this sprawl has disaggregated working people, really depends by industry and region a lot. So there's a general trend since the 1930s, but there's still some workplaces that are more concentrated. There's still certain neighborhoods that are more adjacent. So you really have to take it on a case by case basis. For instance, if you're working at a big university, oftentimes the university almost functions as like a big factory. And so you have a lot of different types of workers in a concentrated space, similarly hospitals um, the workplace itself becomes a big enough environment where a lot of workers will mix and you can chop it up in the cafeteria, things like that. But if you're talking about where the spaces are outside of work, this again becomes harder with suburbanization essentially because people are commuting much longer distances. And, and part of the reason then that social media becomes more important is precisely because you have far fewer of these common shared spaces outside of work in which uh, you could really just have this organic worker to worker connection.
0: You cite a a CP strategy, a communist party strategy uh, of organizing to organize the key factories and important industries, and then hope that good example would proliferate. Could you talk some about that model and uh, how that's more difficult today?
2: Right, the term used at the time was concentration. So you're gonna concentrate on the biggest industries, the biggest workplaces, and the understanding was if you're able to organize kind of at the heart of industry in these huge, massive workplaces, that will set off a chain reaction elsewhere. And that was basically true. It had to do with the um, geography of it. It had to do with the nature of mass production industries, where if you could paralyze one or two key factories, that could set off sort of a disruption to the whole um, process. And that is just not possible to the same extent today. That doesn't mean you can't target certain places, It doesn't mean there aren't some industries or some workplaces that are more strategic than others. So, you you know, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but essentially because there aren't the same degree of large workplaces, you don't have the same degree of concentration. It means that labor unions have to find ways to spread more widely and find ways to encourage organizing that go beyond just this hyper-targeted approach.
0: And we all know about the decline of manufacturing and how that has undermined a sector that was once a union uh, stronghold. But another issue is that service employment is more uh, dispersed than manufacturing employment or tends to be, right?
2: Right. So this is a thing that gets overlooked. Everybody knows, as you mentioned, that industry has declined. But what's missed in this is the spatial dynamic because services, for kind of obvious reasons, have to be very decentralized. You know, you're not going to have Uh, all of the Walmarts in the country in one or two cities or state wouldn't make sense or hospitals or schools or Starbucks. You have to have them spread out to where the population lives uh, in relative proximity. And so because of that, the spatial dynamics of deindustrialization mean that you have more and more workers spread out more and more widely. So for instance, Starbucks, you have 15,000 small workplaces spread out all over the country. And if you can compare that to gm in which you had really a dozen or so strategic massive factories you get a sense of the scale dilemma has become so much harder because to get a critical mass um, when you have so many small workplaces this is just really an order of magnitude more difficult and it helps explain why even though workers might have as much potential power as they had in the past tapping that power is much harder than it used to be
0: you have uh, quite a dramatic anecdote from a, a windmill worker in Texas. Uh, what were his challenges?
2: Right. So so I was talking to one of the staff organizers for the Utility Workers of America. Uh, so they were organizing wind techs in Texas. And, and this is a guy not from Texas. And, and he, he says, these are workers who, uh, in the past, we would have had all working in one plant. You know, we would have had them working in one power plant and now they're spread all over Texas. You know, he says uh, they're all over creation, Texas, you know, good luck finding them. And oftentimes these workers don't even know their coworkers because they're operating over hundreds of miles of space in which they're really on their own. And he says just the challenge then for organizing large number of workers is just something that they had never experienced before when you would have had a hundred workers in one plant. It's different than a hundred workers spread out over a massive state.
0: And the size of workplaces uh, has declined, not necessarily in very recent decades, but over a longer
2: um, stretch of time, right? Right. And it's not the case that the US has ever had um, a majority of workers working in massive factories. Uh, you know even back you know a 100 years ago, uh, there was a lot of small shops. There has been a decline, but in particular, you see the decline in that the biggest companies today, unlike you know a century ago, tend to have smaller workplaces. And this makes a big difference because the bigger companies are the most important for unionizing because they have the biggest pockets to give concessions. And then they also just most central to the economy. So if you can't organize a Starbucks or an Amazon, you're not gonna be able to organize the working class as a whole. And so what you're talking about then is the heart of the economy, the most important workplaces today are spread out into a lot of small um, workplaces, the average from you know 15 or so at a Starbucks to even something uh, slightly bigger at a Walmart, you'll have maybe a couple hundred. Uh, compare that to the average size of a factory for steel or auto in which you're talking about three to four, thousand workers at the average plant oftentimes. So it just makes organizing more difficult because you can't concentrate your forces, your relatively limited forces, on a relative handful of targets.
0: Now, you don't address this specifically, but what about turnover? Is that more of an issue in the service sector than uh, the, uh, the factories of old?
2: So it's a good question. In my research, I actually found that turnover isn't as different as we might expect one of the excuses sometimes unions give today is you can't organize high turnover industries uh, you know, because there's just too much of a churn. And what this confuses is that even back in the day, so in factories before unions, these were also high churn industries. What made turnover lower was unionization. And so the actual data I found suggested that on the whole, we haven't seen as dramatic a shift and turnover rates if we look to the pre-unionization period. Of course, if you look to the 1950s after unionization and like sort of standardized jobs, well then yeah, you do see a big shift. But if we're talking about what does it take to organize workplaces when there's no union, well then actually the turnover obstacles is relatively similar to you saw 100 years ago. That doesn't mean it's easy. It's definitely a challenge and it's definitely harder to organize when workers are working for half a year or not much longer. But they did it in the past and that would suggest that we can do it again today.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because the the BLS's uh, um, data on job tenure really doesn't show an increase in volatility of the sort that people talk about. It seems to be more a a discursive phenomenon than a real-world phenomenon. So there's some people who say that the increase of just-in-time inventory practices, long supply chains, uh, something that was really highlighted uh, during the pandemic uh, supply chain crises. Don't these changes in business practices at least potentially increase working-class power? They do.
2: Um, The question is, to what extent? And there's a line of argument from various people who who suggest that logistics is essentially like the new manufacturing or the new auto. So in the same way as organizing General Motors, sort of turn everything around for labor in the 1937 and 1930s generally, um, the idea is if you could organize Amazon, that would provide a similar leverage point. The difficulty is that logistics isn't actually as central as manufacturing was. And, and its mechanism of functioning, its production process doesn't lend itself to the same level of centralized targeting and disruption. So to give a couple examples, if you could organize one of the mother plants at General Motors, and this is what they did in the famous sit-down strike in 1937, you could paralyze essentially um, almost the entirety of production of a certain certain like, Chevrolet or different types of lines in the company. Today in Amazon, the distributed nature of the supply chain actually means that if you were to have a strike at just one warehouse, for instance, let's say JFK eight famously, where the Amazon labor union won in Long Island, the process of um, distribution allows Amazon to essentially reroute around that one warehouse, because they it's not just strikes or unionization, there's weather issues, there's all sorts of issues that can happen in supply chain, and companies aren't stupid. They have consciously built in rerouting mechanisms in order to mitigate against a complete breakdown of the supply chain. And what's missed a bit in uh, some of this talk about the choke points is that, for instance, during the pandemic, a lot of the reasons you had a breakdown in the supply chain was on the production side of things. So for instance, one of the factories, I believe in China that produced um, some of the parts for cars uh, stopped producing for COVID related reasons. And then that sets off a chain reaction, but it wasn't so much that the logistics distribution side of things blocked everything. Of course, there are certain places where there are major choke points, uh, ports in particular, a lot of things pass through ports. Those tend to already be unionized and the state can intervene to prevent workers from uh, striking in some of these places. So it's not to say that logistics isn't important. It is. It, It seems to me very clearly strategically central for labor, but it just doesn't have the same level of centralization and disruptability as factory work did in the 1930s. And so this raises the need to essentially have a more economically diverse and geographically spread out approach than was possible 100 years ago.
0: Okay, and then finally, what are some strategies? Do you have thoughts on strategies for um, overcoming this challenge of uh, deconcentration and fragmentation and dispersal?
2: The two main things I would stress are, one is you need to move towards a more worker-led, worker-to-worker organizing model and rely less on staff because there are so many more workplaces. You need to basically be able to set off the type of explosions uh, we've seen at Starbucks when you have these kind of unionization go viral in which workers are training over Zoom, other workers, and how to unionize, um, rather than using the traditional model of labor in which you have a staffer choose to target a workplace and then very meticulously help that one workplace by workplace organize. It's just that costs too much and takes too long to be able to organize a large enough number of workers. And then concurrently with that, you need to be able to rely on digital tools so that workers at, say, a Buffalo, a Starbucks can train workers and organizing methods in Arizona, and you don't have to rely to the same extent on staff as you used to because you have these cheap digital tools that allow workers to talk to workers across these spatial divides. So one of the reasons to be optimistic is there's more of an ability than there was even 10 years ago or even five years ago for workers to be able to help train workers and connect with workers across their divides, in part because of the rise of digital tools.
0: Okay, then once you get the union, you have to get your first contract, but that's another story. There's Eric Blank, who teaches labor studies at Rutgers. You can find his post and all this on his substack, Labor Politics. My name is Doug Henwood, and the program is Behind the News, back after a musical break. of doom-scrolling by metric. Next, the widening war in the Middle East. Hassan Al-Tayyab, the legislative director for Middle East policy at the Friends Committee on National Legislation in Washington, recently returned from a trip to Israel-Palestine and has some things to report. Hassan Al-Tayyab. You've just been to the Middle East, and uh, I I guess you find it to be in turmoil, right? It really looks like um, it's going to be hard to contain the war just to Gaza, doesn't it? It's looking more and more like it's going to spread
3: every day. Yeah, it was a very intense trip through East Jerusalem, West Bank, and Jordan for about two weeks in January. And yeah, I've got some key takeaways. One is, you know, for months, the Biden administration has been saying that its goal is to prevent regional escalation. But it was clear during the trip that regional war uh, is not only here, but it's getting worse by the day. We were in occupied territory, we we're in the West Bank. We made the decision not to fly to Erbil, Iraq due to IRGC airstrikes. You know, I even got a media request while we were visiting Palestinian Christian leaders in Bethlehem to comment on U.S. airstrikes on targets in Yemen in response to the Houthis escalations in the Red Sea. You know, I heard air raid silence in Jerusalem echoing through the old city. And a couple days after we, we got back to D.C., there was a drone strike in Jordan that killed U.S. service members. So uh, it's deeply disturbing, deeply troubling. Our call remains the same, that only a ceasefire in Gaza can actually address the regional escalation. So we need a ceasefire restraint, uh, respect for uh, international law, and really working diplomatically, not militarily, to try to ratchet down the tensions in all these other places, which is deeply distressing and, and wouldn't be good for anybody.
0: That uh, attack that killed the three U.S. soldiers, uh, the, the media referring to it as by an Iran-backed group. And you know, the implication always is that somehow Iran is pushing a button somewhere in Tehran and and uh, its its local uh, servants uh, do the deeds. Um, how accurate is that picture? How much are these sorts of uh, acts uh, the responsibility
3: of Iran? There's a couple of things. One is... There is an evidence. I think there's still an investigation going on about what exactly happened to that. I I think it undercuts the idea that there are other domestic actors that have their own rationale for engaging in certain behavior. And, you know, we can't always paint it. But the other thing is that regional escalation is here. Uh, These groups are linked. They are in cooperation. We don't exactly know. If the the quote unquote button is being pushed or the message is being sent out, uh, but we do know that if we don't resolve the issue in Gaza, that this is just going to get worse and worse, and that's the real issue at hand is how do we de-escalate the whole region and not just point fingers and point the blame uh, at certain folks? And uh, last thing I'll say is that we got to be a little careful because the United States is fully funding Israel's war in Gaza. And we've seen 26,000 Palestinians killed as a result of airstrikes, uh, bombing, blockade, and starvation, uh, and and disease. We've seen 10,000 children uh, perish as a result of this war. And people might turn around and say, this is the U.S.-backed Israel uh, war on Gaza. So I I wanted to end with that. But regardless of who's at fault, uh, our collective interests are to end the wars, right? We need to move beyond this and try to try to support de-escalation across the Middle East because it serves no one. You said you're in the West Bank, right? Well, I was. I'm now back in D.C. I was there from January 12 to January uh, 24.
0: And certainly it's not getting the attention that Gaza has been getting. But um, Israel is active there. The settlers are active there. Um, What did you see in the West Bank? What's the mood like? What's happening?
3: The West Bank is, is really intense. There are raids every night. You know, we were staying in Ramallah at the Ramallah Friends School, a hundred and fifty-year-old plus Quaker school. And you know, at night you're hearing gunshots, warplanes flying overhead. The settlers are have been emboldened since October seven, and uh, Ben Gavir has even you know handed out weapons to settlers so when you're walking through the old city, it's pretty disturbing. You're seeing people in civilian clothes carrying AR-15s everywhere, in front of holy sites, at the Wailing Wall, near Al-Aqsa, through the Christian Quarter. Everything feels on a hair trigger, like if you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or perceived in the wrong way that something could happen. And, it, it, you know, it's deeply distressing. And, you know, everyone's traumatized, that, that's for sure. You know, after the October 7 attacks – the violent Israeli military response. And unfortunately, the only way out is through and, and trying to find some way forward because it's just completely unsustainable. And maybe the last thing I'll say is comments a bit about our time going through the West Bank. The checkpoints are really intense. People are being held up sometimes for hours at different checkpoints, and they've closed access to almost every community. They, they keep swapping it out. Well, they'll They'll roll some boulders in front of the road and make you drive an hour and a half to access the village on the other side. So it's very confusing. What would have been a 30-minute drive was two and a half or three hours uh, from Ramallah uh, to Abood. And then we went to Navasale and Nabalus and experienced similar things. So it's definitely really a tense moment. And, you know, we're praying for peace over here.
0: And uh, before I hit the record button, you were saying that uh, the U.S. and Palestinian interests may be more aligned than U.S. and Israeli interests.
3: What did you mean by that? Well, big picture. So often you hear people in D.C. talking about the day after and these different scenarios in Gaza. Many of them have not called for a ceasefire. So I'll just leave that there. And many of these plans fail to include a key element, which is Palestinians and their dreams for a future. And while we were in Ramallah, you know, we spent, I spent many hours with the Carter Center's team through the Occupied Territories, uh, and we met with a whole bunch of folks, but we met with this polling agency, conducting polling on East Jerusalem and uh, West Bank Palestinian perspectives. A couple data points that challenge the mainstream narrative, which is one, 75% of Palestinians support a secular democracy with freedom of religion. 56% want elections after the war. 57% or so want a two state solution, which is up about 20% before the war. And pollsters were suggesting that Palestinians feel like the world is taking their issue a lot more serious now. I look at it, you know, objectively here, and this is what everyone's publicly saying. The U.S. And the PA are publicly supporting regional de-escalation, a two-state solution, humanitarian access to Gaza, and to settler violence, you know, not, you know, a permanent settlement of Israelis in Gaza, and no annexation, where the Israelis are saying they don't want a two-state solution. Uh, They've been blocking aid delivery. Members of the cabinet have openly called for ethnic cleansing, annexation. They want preemptive airstrikes on Hezbollah no addressing of the settler issue. So when I just put that next to each other, uh, it seems like there is a partner for peace, it's just not on the Israeli side right now. And I know a lot of Democrats, uh, Senator Schatz just issued an amendment trying to codify support for a two-state solution on the new national security supplemental. And you know, it's it's 40 plus Democrats jumped on that bill immediately. And so I think there's a real desire to find a way forward out of this mess and I and I think the US government should really try to really take seriously the question of how do we find a way through this and find a way through it that includes Palestinians and in their dreams for their own state, peace, dignity, security and all the things that you know everybody should have as a human being. The US
0: government says that it wants all kinds of good sounding things but it doesn't seem like the U.S. government is doing much uh, to uh, try to persuade Israel to do these good things. Um, what's going on there? It seems like you know you hear these spokespeople say high-minded things, and then they send more bombs.
3: That is the million-dollar, or actually the fourteen point five billion-dollar question. There's a lot of domestic interest, though, as we as we all know. There's a intense support for for Israel and people that have through APAC, Christians United for Israel, military industrial complex really. Have, have come to the aid of Israel. And, and Israel was brutally attacked and you know they deserve sympathy for that attack. But a lot of lawmakers are starting to wake up to the idea that the way this war is being waged is just not in alignment with, with how we want to see it. and it's not in alignment with international law and, and, and what people put forward is US values. So I'll, I'll let other people make a judgment if they're actual US values. There's also another piece of this that doesn't get enough attention, but the U.S. military, as much as Israel depends on the U.S., the U.S. also depends on Israeli technology for our military equipment, and that's a huge piece of the puzzle. But, you know, at the end of the day, a massive regional conflict is not good for anybody. It's not good for U.S. national security interests. Already we're seeing international shipping being disrupted Uh, We're seeing regional partners that are being destabilized. Israel is deeply destabilized by all this. And and until we we wrap this war up, I don't see that changing. So so that's why I put it out there. Uh, We obviously have a lot of work to do on U.S. military assistance. FCNL uh, has called for an embargo on weapons sales and and military assistance to Israel right now. And we're thankful to senators like Van Hollen who have put forward an amendment to try to make sure that U.S. military aid is used in alignment with U.S. law and international law. We're also grateful to Senator Sanders for his historic resolution invoking Section 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act to investigate uh, Israeli human rights abuses in Gaza. And that vote happened while I was in the West Bank. And I, and I tried to explain that to folks how historic that was. That one, you know, we've never had a vote centering Palestinian human rights on the Senate floor. And 12 senators came out to support it, which is a place to start. That's 12 more than uh, we had on the record uh, before. So, uh, you know, I see that as a sign of progress, even though we're not where we want to be. Uh, you know, it's showing some momentum. And, and I'll, I'll note that after the vote, Senator Van Hollen added six more members or so uh, to his amendment. And then we even got Senator Coons on the record saying that he supports conditions on aid to Israel. And, and that's significant considering who he is, being on the Appropriations Committee, being on the Foreign Relations Committee, and obviously with his relationship to Biden. So uh, we, we see all these things uh, you know, making a difference. Unfortunately, the humanitarian crisis is completely urgent. That was People don't need answers in, you know, a year from now or five years from now uh, as opinions shift in the U.S. They really need answers right now. Every day matters.
0: I am Hassan Altab, tab Legislative Director for Middle East Policy at the Friends Committee on National Legislation in Washington. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Sometimes the music I play is a commentary on the show's content, and sometimes it's just fun. This is fun and ancient. Yesterday's Numbers by the Flaming Groovies from 1971. Till next week. Bye. Have you
3: ever been alone? So
2: long you couldn't cry? Did you ever have a home? Did you ever tell
3: a lie? I want to know you well Know your heaven, baby Know your hell
1: Oh, baby, don't just show me Damn. All the things you got to sell
2: Have you ever been alone?